Welcome to Behind the Curtain, L.A. Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. Welcome back. I'm James Conlon. We're going to be listening to the second part of an exploration of the music of Debussy, Wagner, and Peleas and Melisande. We now pass into Act Two, and the first scene takes place by a fountain. There's Pelias's theme. Now, this is not music about the sea, but it is music about water. And you'll hear the similarities here between this and the afternoon of the fawn, which he had written much earlier. Now, strictly speaking, this isn't an interlude. It introduces the theme. The fountain and Pelias and Melisande together. And here's the flowing water. So when the next interlude begins, it takes the music of the fountain. And it dissipates. A suggestion of Golo in the background. Golo. This is clearly Debussy. very noble sounding motive, which is associated with the family. Arkel, his son the king, his son Golol. It builds itself on the basic rhythm at the opening of Golol's motive, and now it's going to distort itself. Something terrible has happened to Golol, and he was thrown from his horse while in the forest. He will recount this to us. This is very similar to a motive from Die Goethe Dämmerung, played on the piano. And there is Debussy. See, they fit in perfectly with one another. Here's an excerpt from the third act of Parsifal. You hear those two notes, papa. Once again, that's Golo's rhythm. And that's going to be combined with another idea that comes from the third act prelude to Parsifal. Wandering. Passage of time. Now listen to it put together. End this interlude. Wagner hangs heavy in the air of this interlude. Parsifal in particular. Compare that with this. Once again, Parsifal. 
third act. You hear that? Unnoticeably, I have slipped into Peleus and Melisande. of the Golo motive and then a distortion of the motive. Same type of distorted rhythm from the first act of Valkyrie. Golo discovers that Melisande has lost her ring, the wedding ring, and he orders her to go out and find it, even though she knows that she dropped it in the fountain. This prelude is going to reflect all that has passed now. A sad, expressive motive. Here, very slowly, the music of the fountain. It's lost all of its vitality. Once again, the fragmentation of the motives. Now Melisande's melody is in there, as well as the fountain. Variation on Melisande's theme. The second part of the interlude brings us into a grotto by the sea in the dark of night. This is the Debussy of the Nocturnes and of La Mer. Now there's a magical moment when suddenly the moon comes out from behind the clouds and illuminates the grotto and illuminates the sea. Now, compare that with another magical moment, the first act of Die Walküre, when the door opens to this small hut and Siegmund and Sieglinde are illuminated by the moonlight of a spring night. Now that's a far cry from Debussy. Mm. 
magic of that moment is going to turn into something frightening. Melisande sees three paupers sleeping in the night. This is the music of the nocturnes. This is nuage, this is clouds. And now we turn into Mussorgsky. This is a direct quote from Boris Kudinov. We've discussed that earlier. Now we're in Act 3. This is the first erotic scene between Peleos and Melisande, where Melisande hangs out of the tower with her long hair, sensuous as the two young people together gradually understand that they're falling in love, but nothing is said yet. Collot interrupts them in a threatening manner, and then the interlude speaks from the heart. It is one of the most beautiful moments in the entire opera. Deep melancholy, poignant expression. Melisande's theme. She seems liberated. But unlike Wagner, Debussy never leads to a climax. He allows it to dissipate. That is Melisande's note. There's her motive. Now again Melisande, but this time with Peleas clearly in the middle. After that deep expression, it dissipates. And we find ourselves in the vaults underneath the chateau. This is whole tone harmony now. Golot has brought Peleas down there to show him. Peleas is frightened. He smells the stench of decay and death. Has Golo brought him down there to frighten him? Perhaps. Do you see, loved Edgar Allan Poe. 
His influence is to be felt in the French symbolist poetry, but very much so in the music of Debussy. And he constructs all of this on the whole tone scale. Now, as they gradually walk out of the vaults and they come into the light, the light of noon, we see this beautiful description. And again, this is the music of La Mer. This is the music that will characterize the next great orchestral piece of Debussy. Very gently, but clearly, Colo warns Peleas to stay away from Melisande. This interlude reflects on that. Wagner has disappeared from the scene. This is the Debussy of the Nocturnes of La Mer. Now, there are no more interludes in Act 3 because we go directly into the scene where we meet Golo's little son, who's called Ignold. He's the child of an earlier marriage. And in this scene, he will become cruel. We will see the dark side of Golo. He's going to force Ignold on his shoulders so that he can peer into the castle to see what are Peleas and Melisande up to? His jealousy now is getting the better of him, and he, in his cruelty, he even mistreats his own little child. Wagner is going to have the last word in this act. As Golo cruelly treats Ignold, we're going to hear The Shades of Tristan. See how that's transformed here in fast motion. Ignold is frightened, and he screams. And there's the famous tritone, the Diabolos in Musica. This is Golo's fury. Listen where it comes from. It's from Tristan. the act comes to a frightening end. The fourth act begins with a short introduction. It's not really an interlude. It just sets the scene. There's great agitation because Peleas has decided he is going to leave the castle and he's going to see his dying friend, Marcellus. There's Peleas's theme. Whole tone harmonies. Fragments of Peleus's theme. Now a terrifying scene. Colo abuses Melisande by dragging her about by her beautiful long hair. He drags her and makes the sign of the cross with her. He accuses her of being an adulteress. After he storms out, or I should say, coldly leaves, Arkel 
the old grandfather sorrowfully said, if I were God, I would have pity on the hearts of man. And then follows the most extraordinary interlude. This reaches a height of expression that goes beyond the tragedy of the individuals. to something universal. It's going to build up to a great climax. Instead of staying in that climactic mode, it dissipates slightly but continues on in its expression. And it builds up for a second time. As we listen to this amazing piece of music, just think if those stagehands could have moved the scenery more quickly opera comique, the world might not have heard this beautiful music. And it dies down. Toward the end of the interlude, we have a very Wagnerian moment. In fact, in its construction, it comes right out of the third act of Parsifal. Here it is whole tone harmony of Debussy, but a rhythmic construction like Wagner. We'll hear the chords on the top and strings pizzicato underneath. Now here's Wagner. Act three of Parsifal. Now back to Debussy. Listen carefully, you'll hear the Tristan motive in there. And again, back to a great climax for the last time. Last time, the solemn horn chords, whole tone harmony related to Parsifal. Interestingly enough, Puccini quoted those chords 
in the final act of Madame Butterfly. Peleos will meet Melisande at the fountain, but it's night, and for the first time they will express their love to each other. And as they reach toward a climax, Golo comes out of the shadows, murders Peleas, and Melisande flees. And so the fourth act comes to an end. The fifth act is all in one scene, consequently has no interludes. It's a deeply expressive act. Golo is repentant, and yet he cannot help himself from asking questions of Melisande. But Melisande, true to form, never gives him any answers. She has just given birth. She's very weak, and eventually she will pass away silently, quietly, and mysteriously, just as she lived. We know nothing more about Melisande at the end than we did at the beginning. Listen to the remarkable resemblance to a scene from Modest Mosorsky's Boris Godunov. Melisande has passed silently. The violins seem to accompany her soul into the universe. And Arkel says, she left without saying anything. Compare that with the third act of Tristan and Isolde. So it seems as if Wagner has had the last word. Now that brings to a conclusion this talk about Wagner's influence on Debussy and Debussy's ambivalent feelings about Wagner. He recognized his greatness. He emulated him at the beginning, professed to detest him at the end. But without Wagner to work against, he wouldn't have been the same composer. I hope I've been able to whet your appetite a little bit for this wonderful, wonderful opera, whose beauty for me, which I've experienced all my life, never fades, but becomes richer and richer with time. If you'd like to pursue more, I would suggest Debussy and Wagner by Robin Holloway, to which I am greatly indebted for having learned so much about this fascinating subject. And if you can't get a chance to see Peleas at this time. There are many wonderful historic recordings, some going back to the 40s. I particularly recommend to you, as you've been listening to it today, the marvelous recording, marvelously conducted by Sir Simon Rattle. That's a way that you can enjoy this and learn to love this opera in the privacy of your home. 
I want to end with a quote from Robin Holloway's book, Wagner and Debussy. In Peleas, Debussy deals with a Tristan-like situation, that his treatment is saturated with echoes and reminiscences both of Tristan and other music of Wagner, but so great is the difference of culture, tradition, personality, expressive intention, and artistic manners that every indication of indebtedness while confirming at once the strength of the influence, it shows the indebted work negative, sour, hostile, indeed antithetical towards both the musical substance and the psychological dramatic meaning of its original. In spite of the immense importance of Wagner's influence upon Peleas, there is another side to Debussy's opera that shows the positive aspect of his conscious hostility to Wagner. Thank you for joining me. I'm James Conlon, Richard Seaver Music Director of Los Angeles Opera. We'll see you next time. If you've enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.